0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Catriona Gold. Today, I'll be interviewing Eugene T. Richardson about his new book, Epidemic Illusions on the Coloniality of Global Public Health, which was published with MIT Press in 2020. Eugene Richardson is Uh, Assistant Professor of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School, visiting faculty at the University of Global Health Equity in Butaro, Rwanda, and Chair of the Lancet Commission on Reparations and Redistributive Justice. Welcome to the show, Eugene.
0: Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Well, I'm very excited to be talking to you about this book, which is absolutely fascinating. So I want to start out first uh, by asking because it's pertinent. If you could tell us a bit about yourself.
0: Sure. Uh, Well, I am uh, American, born in New Jersey, grew up in Florida. Um, And I guess I'd say I I really started getting involved in uh, global health um, after I finished undergraduate. Um, uh, I... I went on a mission with uh, Doctors Without Borders to the Sudan. And this is before I went to medical school uh, because I had studied microbiology. I was able to work as a lab supervisor at one of the field hospitals there. And um, it was a pretty uh, uh, the experience left a lot of impressions on me. But I think this is it was where I first started seeing what is this double edged sword that is aid and humanitarianism and global health um, and what happened there was um, we were working in the southern part of the country and this was before south sudan had uh, gained its independence um, and we were working at a field hospital in a place called Bentiu, and the reason that field hospital had been set up was mainly because there was a large camp of internally displaced persons so that is essentially refugees but but within a country. Um, and uh, a lot of these people had lived more North, but, uh, there were, uh, Arab militias and Mujahideen from the North that had been burning them out of their villages and sending them South. And, uh, they were doing this so that the Chinese could do oil exploration in those areas sort of uninter- uninterrupted. And then the oil was piped up to the, uh, port Sudan. Um, and as the people, you know, were you know, lost their livelihoods, lost their cattle, they were sent south and would come to these camps, where we would take care of them for things like, you know, TB, malaria, uh, leishmaniasis, acute malnutrition, um, and I got to be friends with some of the doctors at the military garrison nearby, which is, you know, serving the North's military because this was basically a front line, but in a civil war between the uh, North and South. And they told me that MSF, or Doctors Without Borders, was part of their military strategy. And, you know, I thought to myself, "Whoa, what? What do you mean by that?" And they said, "Well, um, you know, because we, uh, you know, want to do that oil exploration, we're you know uh, sending people out of their villages, and uh, you know, you are taking care of them in these camps. You're basically curing disease, curing malnutrition, but you're also hiring people." paying nurses a hundred dollars a month, which can support up to 40, you know, extended family members. Um, and so a lot of these people are not, you know, hitting rock bottom enough that they would join the SPLA, the Southern People's Liberation Army. So it's like this strategy actually helps our enemy ranks from not swelling. So you're, you are part of our military strategy. I thought, wow, I, I never knew that, you know, there was such political ends, humanitarian work could be used for, you know, in this sense, it's a form of internal colonialism, um, as, as we would call it. Um, and so, you know, I was obviously very naive at the time because, you know, if I had read, I would have known that, you know, from Biafra to, uh, the Hutus in, in DRC after the Rwandan genocide, there are many ways that uh, humanitarian missions have been used for kind of geopolitical ends. Um, but this was my first real experience of it to see that, okay, this, uh, you know, aid humanitarianism is a kind of a two-edged sword. But then I started reading more and and working more in the global South and, you know, in reading people like Kwame Nkrumah, who said as early as the 1960s, you know, uh, aid is a revolving credit where a little bit is given in to continue a a huge amount of extraction that comes out. So for me, Sudan was like a uh, sort of a microcosm of that because it was an internal colony. But, um, you know, when you started looking at bigger development projects, uh, you could see that, um, you know, development is almost, uh, uh, you know, I've come to see it as a farce, essentially, that, um, and if you look at the statistics, I think it's easy to, to prove that statement. Um, let's use the continent of Africa. Um, there, the stats from 2017 are something like, you know, 60 billion dollars, or I think it's yeah, 60 billion dollars went into the continent in the form of aid, loans, and remittances, and 200 billion dollars came out in illicit financial flows. This is not you know repatriation of profits. This is illegal theft of money through tax evasion, trade misinvoicing, resource theft, and so the, the continent is a net creditor of something like 40 billion per year to the global north. I mean, they are developing us. And so the idea that we have this USAID, United States Agency for International Development, is, is a total farce because really Kwame Nkrumah's words ring true. A little bit is being given, and it's disguising what our corporations continue to do, whether it be via mining, logging, um, all sorts of industries that uh, uh, is extract through uh, illicit flows. And... And that's why I'll say something like, you know, the Panama Papers to me were a huge global health intervention in the past five years, because they're really starting to lift the lid on this neocolonial extraction. And so to finish the story, you know, I, I initially saw aid and development as a way to disguise this extraction. I think that's been written a lot about. But what I further came to notice was that even what we call global health science, like the, the public health work we do there, um, it aids in this cover up. <laughs> um, so what we think of as an objective, value-free, neutral public health science is actually part of this apparatus of disguising, uh, you know, uh, illicit flows to the, to the global north. And so the book is essentially about not the aid part of it, but how what we call um, uh, public health science, epidemiology, things like that, how that abets uh, continued neocolonial extraction. And I just use a variety of examples of, you know, this may look like a neutral scientific project, but here's how it uh, aids this continued system of extraction. Um, and yeah, so that's, you know, 20 years later, that's where I arrived.
1: All right. So, I mean, okay, so the the intervening 20 years, um, was there anything in particular that prompted you to, to sort of write this book, you know, here mm-hmm. now i guess that's that's what i'm curious about how you came to write it
0: yeah i think you know part of that story is also before i went to medical school i i had done pre-med as an undergraduate but really did not see um doing clinical work in the u.s as what i wanted to do for 100 percent of my life i i you know was thinking about how um you know, more globally, I guess you could say. And that's when I started reading Paul Farmer, who is my current boss, and, um, you know, learned about how, uh, you know, it's not just the the biology that makes people sick, right? You know, a virus jumps into a person, makes them sick, a tumor forms and makes them sick from cancer, that social forces can actually get into the body and make people sick. And I think that was really transformative to, to start to understand that how uh structural violence how social forces become embodied as pathology as we would say and that got me really interested in um you know getting back on the med med school path but also um you know pulling into that that path ways of uh of understanding you know the, the the social determinants of health um and so i went to medical school uh, went to residency and then ended up doing a PhD in anthropology during my um, infectious disease subspecialty training, um, which is similar to the path that uh, Paul Farmer took. And so, um, you know, I, I was really uh, influenced by his writings early on to um, you know to pursue a a, a study of of uh, you know you could call it. Social epidemiology, you know, disease distribution, but um, how it's determined by not only current social forces but historical forces as well. And so, I think that uh, coupled with the the experience of aid and starting to see public health science as a double edged sword, um, you know, coalesced. Um, and then a pretty, another uh, formative experience was working in, uh, in 2014, I started working in the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone. And I think that gave me a real, you know, I had just finished, um, my infectious disease fellowship. So I was a qualified physician. So I had the ability to see things from a, a clinician's point of view, but I had also, um, finished much of my PhD. So I had the, the tools to understand things from that, you know, contextualizing discipline um, and with my colleagues there um, came to um, to uh, understand the outbreak in terms of, uh, uh, you know, some of the more socio historical forces. But then, um, you know, in wanting to write about it, I saw that a lot of people had done the good work of, of tracing, uh, you know, the, such things. I mean, uh, Paul even has a new book out uh, Fevers, Feuds and Diamonds, which does that very thing is the colonial History of how uh, you know that set the foundation for weak health systems and and uh, you know a large Ebola outbreak in West Africa and so I thought there's people much better than me writing about you know using empirical data using historical evidence to demonstrate um, how outbreak like how outbreaks like this uh, you know evolve from colonial legacies and so I thought I'd like to speak to uh, another audience um, uh, maybe more the practitioners that are involved in, you know, studying and and accounting for and and working in these outbreaks. Um, And the reason the book takes the form that it does, which is very experimental and there's a lot of different, um, uh, you know, heuristics from flash fiction to reverse ethnographies to counter hegemonic hegemonic modeling, is that... um, you know, what I'm, what I'm giving is sort of a critique of modernity, right? Is that, you know, the idea that we can come to these objective views of, of why things happen, of why this outbreak happened, of of why this person got sick and this person didn't get sick. There are many ways of, of, of parsing health phenomena. And so I kind of, uh, I approached the book experimentally to sort of rattle that up, to, to rattle up our Western tradition uh, of that, you know, Science can get us to a objective, neutral description of, of uh, you know what we see, what what we see as far as social phenomena. That's that's where the um, the cover of the book comes out of. Um, the The cover is essentially a play on Plato's cave, um, and uh, you know I can talk some more about that if you.
1: Yeah, I'd, lo- I'd really like to hear more about the cover. I was intrigued by it. And then when I saw that it you commissioned it, right, you, or con- conceived of it. And yeah, and I was, I was trying to work it out before I started reading the book. Obviously, I know you're not supposed to be judging the book by its cover. But if it's, you know, when it's a cover this fascinating, I think maybe a bit of leeway. But yeah, I would love to hear more about it.
0: Yeah, so I had made a very crude drawing of this, and an artist here in the Bay Area, Lena Gustafsson, made it into the very pretty uh, cover that it is. And so I'm in debt to her. Um, And it it essentially, you know, Plato's cave uh, is is this... uh, The allegory of the cave is that there are prisoners stuck in a cave, and they're chained to a wall, and all they can see are these shadows on the wall because behind them other people are walking with like uh, figurines and there's a fire that projects the 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 shadows onto the wall Um, and then one of their lot you know usually it's thought of the philosopher or in my case I guess it would be the social scientist is able to sneak out get up into the real world and say oh my god this is what things really look like and then they come back and they say this is what You know, you're just looking at shadows on a wall. This is what reality truly is. And so that's kind of a tradition we've inherited, that there is always this objective way of describing things and is what I think it what powers social science. You know, this idea that when we look at social phenomena, we can come up with an answer that reflects that reality. And I have a you know very you know different opinion on it you know which stems back as far as you know the the neo Kantians which would say no there's a there's a very big difference between the natural sciences and the um, and say social inquiry and not that one's better than the other but they're very different forms of inquiry so that um, you know natural science is looking for m- more causal explanations more laws that you know are are unchanging so. Three quarks make a proton, and, and masks prevent viral particles from entering your body, and uh, tobacco uh, is a carcinogen and can cause cancer. But when you're talking about actual social phenomena, that say that is in, um, something that involves human behavior, that there can be no um, laws, there's no equations that will tell us you know, how people are, are acting uh, in the future. What there is is interpretation um, because social phenomena are so complex, um, our attempts to reduce that complexity through models or descriptions will always distort the reality of it. And we have to make choices about what, um, what variables we're going to use, what methods, what modes of interpretation we're going to use. And for me, that is not scientific. That is actually, um, that is more of a, um, you know, falls under an interpretivist line. And I'm not saying that anything goes, like I don't believe in, in, a, in sort of a full relativity, uh, because you are constrained in what you're saying. You know, this Ebola outbreak started because dot, dot, dot. It didn't start because a, a magic white pumpkin fell out of the sky and exploded and Ebola came out of it. Like We're constrained within our facts. But you could choose to say that, you know, uh, the facts are that there are people that didn't believe that Ebola existed And that, you know, they thought it was a U.S. bioweapon and you could say, okay, um, if only they understood virology and took the vaccine, then um, there wouldn't be any outbreak. And so we have their ignorance to blame. So that is a a explanation of causation because it's based in facts. Yeah, you talk to people and they might say, yeah, Ebola is a U.S. bioweapon and that's why I'm not going to get the vaccine. Or you could talk to them further and bring some history into it and see that, you know, there is a habitual distrust of, uh, you know, foreign interventions in a place where over 200 years, people have had their hands cut off for not collecting enough rubber. Uh, You know, colonialists in Belgium um, have extracted uh, wealth to the tune of trillions of dollars. Um, The U.S. has, uh, you know, uh, was involved in killing their first elected prime minister and installing a puppet dictator in Mobutu who took a little bit of money from the US and then allowed our corporations to run rampant in resource extraction, which they continue to do. Uh, You know, where I was working in North Kivu, uh, there's a company, Anglo Gold Ashanti, which is a foreign entity, takes about 93% of the wealth from the gold they extract, leaving just 7% (laughs) for the country. Uh, You know, the the chief shareholder of that company was um, John Paulson. Who gave four hundred million dollars to Harvard, and now we have the Paulson School of Engineering. So the 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 net of extraction continues to this day, and it continues to you know my front door at Harvard, and and this is you know this is what I'm I'm trying to do, and you know uh, others have done a much better job of it. But tracing the determinative web of this continued extraction, um, you know, it's not lost on the people there, and so it, it it's a it's very logical. It makes sense that um, you know they. Uh, they would not trust you know, foreign interventions in, into the outbreak. And that's another explanation that is based in facts, but has more of an eye towards social historical justice instead of just neoliberal individuality. And that's what I mean by uh, you know, the, the, the cover, which is essentially uh, a bunch of caves, or I call it a warren, um, so that there's not just one cave that you know, uh, people can go to and, and, and have an idea about what's going on. There are many. And that so there are many interpretations of social phenomena that vie for the forefront of our consciousness. And the one that usually gets hold is the one that's supported by elites. I mean, this is what Gramsci means by cultural hegemony, right? The the interpretations that prevail are the ones that support elite interests. And so you're interested in supporting social justice. Part of it is a is an epistemic uh Revolution, right? You 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 support views that that support this justice. So in the case of the Ebola outbreak in, in DRC, it's supporting the view that it's not people's ignorance that uh, that is causing it, but that it is legacies of colonial extraction. And that's what I mean by redescription. That, that's a that's a redescription of using facts of what might be a cause and and a group. Um, you know that is that has access to more facts from the past that has more you know experiential data could go back even further and say well this is an even more just redescription and so that's the idea of the cover that there are pluriversal ways of uh, describing uh, social phenomena that you know again vie for our attention and that um, there's ideology behind all of them there's justice ideologies. There's extractive ideologies, and the idea is to find, like, what is the ideology that's cooking, you know, up uh, the, the way we're, we're parsing facts, the way we're curating facts. Um, and so, yeah, the book that the cover kind of discusses the, the book in a, in a nutshell in that, you know, I'm promoting pluriversal understanding of uh, health phenomena.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's yeah, that's incredible. I think we should start to get into some of those ways um, in which you you get at these questions, right? And um, these multiple factors and possible interpretations. I really like how sort of provocative and and playful a lot of a lot of these chapters are, and um, I suppose one of the ones that really stood out for me so we've got uh, we've got flash fiction we've got platonic dialogues we've got uh, yeah semiotics call and response symbolic reparations and border gnosis. and uh, we also have uh, yeah hegemonic modeling and it's and 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 a whole bunch of other stuff is going on at the same time um, the one which you know i'm a sucker for it i love it i would really like to hear more about how you approached uh chapter or rather redescription number 3 uh which is a nasarema ethnography
0: yes yeah, so the, the nasarema ethnography is based on um a, a similar you could say ploy <laughs> uh from you know decades ago um, that was, you know, Nasarema backwards is American, um, and so there. W- I came across this, I think, when I was in a sociology class as an undergrad in the 90s, and essentially it's an ethnography of Americans. But you know, it, it takes it takes a little bit to realize what's going on there, you know, um, but. It is, it's like, uh, you know, say an anthropologist from Africa had arrived in the U.S. and was describing our crazy rituals um, to, to kind of help relativize, you know, what we, you know, and it's good for students, you know, what we think as uh, sort of just natural behavior behaviors or natural f- phenomena are actually, you know, socially constructed, have a, um, history behind them and would seem very strange to people, uh, you know, not from our culture. So, um, you know, one thing I think is, you know, strange to people in parts of the world is, is that we wear braces, right? And who cements metal to their teeth and undergoes pain uh, for three years to, you know, you know, make things a little straighter. I think in the Nasarema thing, they talk about our bathroom rights where we brush with horse hair every day. Um, You know, I'm reminded of, there's a great uh, documentary or mockumentary you want to call it um, called a barbecue area uh, from Australia and it's about um, a group of uh, Aboriginal sailors who arrive in a, in a colonial ship to a beach in Australia and land um, and there's a you know white people barbecuing on the beach and they, they come up to them and they say, you know what is this land?" And the people say, "Ah, oh, it's the barbecue area." They say, "Okay, we claim barbecue area in the name of you know their their country," and then it proceeds out from there as kind of an exploration of like you know what reverse uh, contact, initial contact would have looked like. And I think that it's helpful in sort of you know um, getting people to understand right the the um, the. How things are socially constructed how there's not a you know not universals uh, as far as behavior or ethics or anything like that and so the idea was to use that same model to explore um, the who and the or the primitive tribes of lake geneva as i called them Um, and so you know i go through and talk about how i made friends with them so i could you know understand their rights Um, And I look at some of their parchments, you know, written by Max Weber, but, you know, uh, you know, write it off as I came across some ancient scrolls or something like that. And so the goal is to kind of flip things on their head so you can see that, you know, a lot of what goes on in the belly of the beast where global health decisions are made and, uh, you know, a lot of the NGOs have all of their practices are not only contrived. And socially constructed, but they're also very, you know, self-serving. They have agendas that, you know, like I mentioned, as far as, uh, you know, uh, extractive economies that support the global north. I mean, here is a uh, it's one way of trying to re-describe things so that that argument is made instead of saying, WHO is the hand, you know, our UN organizations are also the handmaiden of neo-colonial extraction. Um, Here's a way of kind of exploring it uh, in a in a novel fashion so that maybe um, the 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 categories that we're used to every day um, that we think of as natural kind of get rattled around so that we see them as uh, you know somewhat more constructed.
1: Right. Yeah, sort of a a show don't tell approach is I feel evident in in some of these chapters, and that I feel that playfulness. Yeah, really allows you to get at things in a way that's that's really it's a really helpful illustration of uh, yeah of some of these questions. Um, yeah, I mean, my yeah, goal was I wonder to... uh, if if you'd like to walk us through. Yeah, sorry.
0: Oh, no, no problem. Yeah. My, I mean, the, what, what I'm doing is essentially critiquing modernity. I mean, modernity is kind of founded on this notion that there are, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, scientific, like everything can ha- has its explanation and uh, we can quantify everything and uh, everything has nice sharp edges. Um, and so to critique modernity, it's hard to, you know, if you want to say that there are other ways of seeing the world, uh, you don't want to use logic and equations to show that because you're you're sort of using the master's tools. And so the idea of the book book was that yeah you can't critique modernity using its terms of reference, and hence the variety of approaches to try to um, you know shake out uh, a different understanding. Um, you had mentioned the the chapter on uh, counter he- hegemonic modeling, um, and that has actually become uh, you know. A part of my practice after the, the publication of the book. We um, we just put out a paper in February uh, that was called um, Reparations for Descendants of People Enslaved in the U.S. and Their Potential Impact on COVID Transmission. Um, and the idea behind this one was sort of, you know, both worlds. It was to make a critique of, you know, the current models we use uh, really just reinforce status quo, right? You know the um, uh, you know, moving to the COVID outbreak, we have uh, you know, 30 something million cases, 600,000 deaths in the U.S., but there's still a huge disparity in, um, you know, in, in black people dying, you know, two, to, uh, it was three times more than, uh, than uh, white populations. Um, and a lot of the, the modeling and the studies and the interventions didn't really take that into account. They would say, let's wear masks, let's social distance. Uh, you know, close some businesses, do some stay-at-home, but there was there was no interventions into risk structure. Why is it that uh, you know uh, people of color were were suffering uh, higher incidence and mortality? And so, you know, if you take Ibram Kendi's definition of a racist policy or even a racist analysis is one that continues status quo disparities, then these then these uh, analyses could be looked at as racist because they're not doing anything to imagine a future where these disparities don't exist. And so that's what we did. We tried to you know uh, bring into the social imaginary what would it look like to have racial justice interventions um, and what effect would that have on COVID? And we found that um, essentially eradicating the wealth gap, which is what uh, you know we were calling for in our package of reparations. and the, the wealth gap between black and white Americans is 10 trillion dollars. If that had been eradicated, many years ago, we found that our current outbreak would probably be 30 to 60% less. I mean, it's a big, it's a, it's a big gap, but um, it, you know, it's hard to uh, specifically quantify. And that's just through, you know, um, better housing, better ability to social distance, uh, less overcrowded housing, less uh, people you know, of color being forced to work in frontline work. Um, and so to me, that was kind of a uh, so that was, you know, a form of anti-racist modeling. And it, it draws from the book in that it's trying to um, explode current approaches, you know, the status quo approaches to, to interpreting global health phenomena, which the book argues really just continue to perpetuate that status quo and tries to move into more of the realm of, OK, well, you know, we want to continue using these tools what would it look like to actually do some uh, anti-racist epidemiology? And so um, that article's out in um, Social Science and Medicine. And now we're working on another study um, on environmental racism and COVID. So, you know, people are starting to show that places with poor air quality have higher incidence and higher mortality from uh, COVID. So, you know, maybe the pollution is affecting... The lung lining, such that you can get infected more, and and that you can, um, you know, uh, also suffer higher uh, mortality rates. And so, if you you know take that further and show that well, there are places in the U.S. that either through redlining or the way uh, cities were set up, that people of color were placed in the uh, places forcibly where uh, uh, the air quality is worse. Then you you know then you have a a mechanism. Um, you know, you can tie redlining essentially to higher COVID mortality. So it's not just people are in overcrowded housing. It's the inability of, of, uh, you know, governments to meet EPA guidelines in, in, you know, the poorer parts of cities. And so that comes back again to the government for, uh, you know, um, health phenomena that, that occur decades later and so we model we're modeling what it would look like if these goals had been met if air quality was improved what uh you know how many people's lives would have been saved and i think it's you know it's part partly to show that that's something we need to do and partly to sh- uh, help people understand that you know it's not just COVID, it's not just o- overcrowding it's like what are the mechanisms by which racism Gets into people's body; it makes people sicker. And this is, uh, you know, this would provide another example.
1: Um, it said you were sorry. It said you were offline for one second. I will we'll edit this bit out. Are you? Are we? Can are you here now? Are yeah. we cool? Do we have a connection? Yeah, okay. I can hear you. Now. Right. Okay. Sorry, just checking. It. It. Whatever. Maybe I've created an interruption. Uh, <laughs> but we'll edit anyway. All right. Let's press on. Um, so that. Yeah, I mean, I really like this idea of counter hegemonic modeling. And it and it I mean, you're linking up really well here the kind of more speculative, I suppose, approach of the book and this sort of playful techniques in there with the actual, you know, the work you're doing and how it does have this real world applicability too, right? You know, critique isn't just critique, it it has to do with practice. And uh, I think you make that really clear. Um, I'm wondering if there's any of the other techniques in here you'd really you'd like to uh, you'd like to get into while we're here.
0: Uh, you know the the first chapter, the flash fiction, which uh, a lot of you know readers have said, "Oh, that was you know I, I didn't know that that was how you you know grew up or came to it." the story not about me. <laughs> It's sort of their uh, archetypal, I guess you know, white liberal, uh, wealthy individual. I mean, maybe there are some elements that I I pulled from my history, but interestingly, that that uh, uh, you know, just to give a quick description to the the audience, flash fiction is essentially you know, the attempt to tell a novel in under 500 or 1,000 words. And they have, you know, great, you know, the competitions around the world and there's some uh, really great stories. Um, you know, the, there's an apocryphal, um, I think it's maybe you know, one sentence or two sentences that's attributed to Hemingway, but I think it came out before. And it's something like, uh, baby shoes for sale, never worn. And so it's one sentence but it's very sad it's very evocative it le- allows you to think of all sorts of things that could have happened um, so the flash fiction I use is kind of a uh, a coming of age of a of a you know a white American student who learns that um, you know he's not just sort of this wealthy Zion of of uh, you know liberalism and democracy but that he's that he's really a product of coloniality, a product of extraction from uh, uh, from the rest of the world. And so, uh, the interesting thing about it, though, it was picked up by the DSA or Dem- Democratic Socialists of America. They actually just took that chapter and put it on their website as a blog, which uh, I thought was nice uh, and and was part of what uh, you know my hope for the book that it was sort of this modular thing that people could take and pick little pieces of it that they thought relevant to whatever. And I guess DSA thought it was relevant to kind of shaking people's ideas about, you know, where our, our wealth and prosperity comes from. Um, and so, yeah, uh, that, that to me was a, 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 pleasant surprise when they did that. Um, let's see what else is in there. Um, Oh and then the, the Platonic dialogue was fun. Um, I mean I admittedly, you know, there there's critiques of it where you know I have basically have a uh, dialogue between Kwame Nkrumah and Charles Peirce. Uh, Peirce is c- considered the father of American pragmatism and Kwame Nkrumah is the first president of Ga- Ghana and a, a great uh, African philosopher. Um, you know people have critiqued it for me giving, you know, uh, forming their voices and kind of uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, telling telling the world what they would say if they were alive today, and so uh, I'm sorry for that. But the goal of it was to kind of explain the cover, was to give uh, is based on the actual Socratic dialogue where they talk about the allegory of the cave, and just turned into um, a dialogue about what a what a warren might you know if if Plato had written an allegory of a warren with that dialogue. So that was kind of fun. But it also behind it has my, I you know, ideas on epistemic revolution and, you know, deconstructing this universal claims to knowledge to welcoming the pluriversal.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's such such a lot going on here. And it's great to know that you're open to. Um, people sort of taking up parts of it and 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 running with it. I didn't know that the DSA had uh, had republished or essentially, you know, some of it. But that's that's fantastic. Um, yeah, it is. It is. I mean, it's sort of. It seems wrong to call the book accessible, given that it touches on so many quite high con- concepts. But also, it is. I think it does function as as a very accessible introduction to. To these kind of techniques and ways of critical ways of thinking, and as you say, critiques of modernity. Um, Mm -hmm. So, in that sense, you know, could be quite useful as a course text. You know, or of course for for the general reader. I think this this should have sort of an audience beyond beyond the academy. Um, So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I suppose you've told us a bit about what you're working on now, which is usually my last question. Um, is there anything else you'd like to mention on that note or maybe future plans uh, for work before we wrap up?
0: Sure. Um, So I've just been working with uh, the Africa CDC and the Sierra Leone Ministry of Health. And um, I think just yesterday we submitted the first uh, COVID antibody survey from the African continent. Um, and we found that um, that overall in Sierra Leone the prevalence was was not that high. Uh, it was two point eight percent overall, which is much much better than you know countries in Europe and the Americas. Uh, in the capital city, it was more on the order of five uh, percent, um, which you know makes sense because people are in more congregate settings. But what it did show is that um, the uh, if you, if you look at that prevalence, how many people that means are infected throughout the country, 200 something thousand, and you look at how many cases they've actually reported over the year, um, that there's actually 43 times under reporting, um, based on the, the surveillance they've been able to do. And that has a lot to do with, um, you know, uh, availability of resources, you know, the global North snatching up, um, not only the, the methods of testing but we, we've seen through this vaccine apartheid all of the vaccines as well um, and that that's you know a huge problem for a, a country that you know now we're saying there're only not 97 percent of the people are susceptible even maybe the three percent if the delta variant can get through uh, acquired immunity um, to to previous variants um, but also that a third wave is moving through africa at the moment and um, if and they're starting to report as many as 80 90 cases a day and if that underreporting that we understood from march is still true that means there's actually 3 to 4000 cases per day and so our worry is is that you know even though there's um, we're we're worried about a huge wave sweeping the continent that it's much much bigger it could be 30 to 40 times bigger than than what we're seeing um, and this uh, you know reinforces claims not only for a stronger containment measures but People that uh, the work that people have been doing as, uh, as far as vaccine justice. You know, it doesn't make any sense that to me that we have leftover vaccines here that people aren't taking, or that we're trying to get, you know, 12 to 18 year olds vaccine when there are healthcare workers and adults and elderly individuals dying uh, across the spectrum in sub Saharan Africa, in India, that this vaccine apartheid is really, um, uh, you know, causing a huge amount of deaths around the world. Um, you know, we're starting now to try to build out the ability to, um, you know, produce mRNA vaccines, but even the the waiver for that at the WTO, to waive the intellectual property for it, which was supported by Biden, is being blocked by European countries. Um, so even our attempts, which th- should have started a year ago and only are starting now, to really improve access are being thwarted. And so here's another example of, in the book, I call it coloniality. You can call it neocolonialism, at work. The protection of big pharma profits at the expense of people dying across the global south. And so, even in um, you know uh, your standard epidemiology work, which is knowing your outbreak, which is what we did with the antibody survey, there are ways of uh, you know using it to understand the justice implications. And the justice implications for the third wave moving for Africa are, are that the vaccine apartheid being spearheaded by the global North is killing lots of people. And that, that blood is on the hands of, uh, you know, the uh, big pharma, the German government and the French government. Um, and, um, and uh, in response to that, you know, uh, uh, Africa CDC has been working to try to develop the manufacturing Nepal Paul Kagame from Rwanda is, is leading this effort. But They they've come you know they come across so much resistance and they're only able to start a year and almost a year and a half after the outbreak has started. You can see uh, the the I mean this is in real time what coloniality looks like. What are global South countries up against when it's big when it's profits versus people? I mean this is this is you could use this example for uh, rubber. And ivory extraction, uh, 200 years ago, and you can use it today for, for vaccine production. That's what, I mean, that's essentially what the book gets at is that, you know, colonial, colonialism by another name exists today, whether you want to call it neocolonialism or neoliberalism, but that extraction, that, that approach to profits over people's lives still continues. And we're seeing the horrible ramifications of it now through, uh, this vaccine injustice.
1: Right, yeah, that's uh, that seems like a very appropriate point at which to end, and I hope underscores the importance of the book um, to our listeners. Who I uh, do, I highly recommend it. Um, so, I've uh, yeah, I want to say thank you so much for your time today, Eugene. Um, this has been Katrina Gold talking to Eugene T. Richardson of Harvard University about his new book, came out in 2020 with MIT Press, Epidemic Illusions on the Coloniality of Global Public Health. Thanks again, Eugene. um, And I hope to have you on the show again for your next book.
0: Thanks so much. Yes, I, I hope our paths cross soon.